0: Hi, I'm Trisha Johnson, the host of Aspen Ideas To Go. Every week you hear fascinating conversations from the Aspen Institute stage. For this special series, our guests have stepped off stage for intimate conversations on critical topics. Here's our first interview on activism.
1: It's the Aspen Ideas To Go off stage series. I'm Hutley, a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times. Today, a new era of activism. Young people are leading on gun control. Me Too is shedding light on sexual harassment. And the immigration debate rages on. What's actually working for activists? And how has the conversation changed under President Trump? The Aspen Ideas to Go Off-State series goes into the issues that impact all of us. These conversations feature presenters at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Today, we hear from Christian Picciolini. A former white supremacist skinhead who now dedicates his life to helping others counter racism. He is the author of White American Youth My Descent into America's Most Violent Hate Movement and How I Got Out. Thanks for joining me, Christian. Thanks, Waj. Good to be here.
2: So, Christian, uh, people say there's a rumor about something called white supremacy. Um, Does it exist, or are we talking about Bigfoot?
0: Watch despite what some uh people might think and, and proclaim to me on a fairly regular basis that white supremacy doesn't exist, uh, does in fact exist and is flourishing uh and has never really gone away since um you know we've started out as a nation.
2: You know, I say that because even at Aspen, um and and I was giving a talk and I was talking to Jelani Cobb, uh and even you know, I've been there before and you know, some, some Aspen listeners and some Aspen attendees get very offended by the term white supremacy or white privilege um, and say, you know, why do you keep saying it? Uh, it it uh, It's over-exaggerated or it doesn't exist. And they take this as a just deep personal affront to it. And we could explore that in a second, but how would you actually define it?
0: You know, I think that there are a lot of people who are very uncertain in this country. Um, and I think that those are the people that have enjoyed power, you know, for generations. Um, and what's happening now is not that white people are losing anything what's happening is that everybody else who hasn't enjoyed that in the past is finally getting that getting towards that equal treatment and it seems like something is being taken away but what's really being taken away is power and that power is white supremacy that's not to say that white people are better uh that's to say that they are more in power and they want to empower uh the folks below them because um it creates a comfortable environment for them uh, and they feel safer because of the fear rhetoric that's been spread around.
2: I mean, you make an interesting observation because it seems that for many in America, uh, and we could talk about this election, uh, if you've been in power your whole life, equality begins to look like oppression. And I say that because when we're dissecting and talking about this, you know, the Trump phenomenon, as some people say, which I don't think is necessarily a phenomenon, but I think what you articulated is something that's always existed is study after study after study has now concluded that the primary motivator, not the only motivator, but the primary motivator of so many people who went for Trump was white anxiety, um, racial anxiety, more so than economic anxiety. And can you elaborate on that?
0: Yeah, you know, and I want to be clear, too. I mean, when we're talking about white privilege, I mean, there are underprivileged white people living, you know, in parts of our country that just like in our inner cities don't have access to proper resources or uh you know their socioeconomic status is is, you know non-existent essentially um and you know i i think it's more i see it more as like classism versus racism and it just so happens that the elites in this class system happen to be white males Uh, and for those white males that have enjoyed you know this you know let's call it privilege uh, for so long, now see that whatever is being, uh, you know, equalized uh, in their eyes, like you said, is oppression or something is being taken away from them, and they develop these grievances based on so much of this fear rhetoric that's going around and disinformation, which turns into misinformation when other people spread it. Um, you know that it's really it's hard to know what the heck is going on right now, and, and uncertainty has always been a driver of extremism.
2: So, you know, it's fear, it's uncertainty, it's grievance, but it's usually wrapped around an ideology. Uh, and that ideology of supremacy is what has radicalized uh, a lot of ind- individuals, uh, and it radicalized you. Can you take us through the journey of, where, you know, you're this kid, you're growing up in America, I'm, I'm just going to make an assumption, a good kid, mm-hmm. normal kid, and you per, you perchance might have some grievances, and it's this ideology of supremacy that attracts you. What was so attractive about it?
0: Well, I started to become radicalized the day I was born, as I think most people are. I don't think that ideology and dogma are the you know are the radicalizing factors. I think they're just the final permission slip that gives people mm. a reason and a license to do and act out on whatever they're angry about. They then have a purpose. I think that you know I felt abandoned as a kid, and, and I was a good kid. I did come from a, a great family who loved me. You know, there wasn't any abuse. There wasn't any, you know, alcoholism or addiction. Uh, my parents are actually Italian immigrants who came to the U.S. in the mid-60s, uh, and they were the victims of prejudice when they arrived. So I wasn't raised as a racist. In fact, I was raised the opposite. My family was very open. But, you know, because they were immigrants, they had to work extra hard. They ran a small business that uh, kept them away seven days a week, 14 hours a day. And growing up, I, you know, I wondered where why they weren't there and if i did something to push them away and i wasn't mature enough or brave enough to you know voice what i was feeling and i think that that's one of the problems we're facing adults are not able to be vulnerable with children and in turn children don't know how to be vulnerable with adults Um, but you know i started to become radicalized and 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 feel very marginalized in society i was bullied and um, you know one day at 14 years old i was standing in an alley i was smoking a joint And this car pulls up and this guy gets out with a shaved head and boots and he pulls the joint from my mouth, smacks me in the head and looks me in the eyes and says, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. You know, what the hell did I know at 14 years old? I didn't know what a communist was or what a Jew was or even what the word docile meant. But he was kind of the first person to throw me a lifeline and say, hey, there's something better for you. I can give you that identity, community, and purpose that you're looking for and haven't been able to find anywhere else. I would have, you know, I, I would have jumped into anybody's car that day that promised me anything because I just wanted to belong so bad. And in fact, you know, from my experience, and I now work with people to help them disengage from hateful ideologies. Um, they'll tell you the same thing that they got involved because they were looking to belong and to be part of something. You know that was uh, important I thought it was a humanitarian when I was you know 14 and 15 doing this
2: the the humanitarian skinhead
0: yeah I thought I was saving the world and I couldn't understand why uh, nobody else you know could see it my way that was my reality you know
2: you said you said community identity and purpose uh, which was fascinating to me because uh, you know talking to several people who became extremists who got out like you Uh, the DNA of those who are radicalized seems to me and and tell me if I'm wrong to be very similar I'm talking about people who were Muslim radicals people who were gang members uh, people part of the IRA cult members cult members it seems like even faith groups even even faith groups it seems like angry dislocated men and women Desperately in search of purpose, who find the community that gives them meaning, right. and whatever that ideology is, is the ideology that is very stark, black and white, in out
0: structure, and
2: it's one that structure and ones that says that you are the protagonist of a cosmic narrative, uh, and all it's at stake. And you have, when it comes to religious radicals, a celestial validation, and when it comes to others, it's like history. But it's always paradise.
0: Yeah, it's always paradise. It's this it's hero's kind of promise. They put you, you know, they give you meaning when you you feel, you know, meaningless. They they give you this perception of worth when you feel worthless, and and powerful when you feel powerless. Uh, and to some well, degree, to,
2: the no, I'm know. sorry, I didn't sorry, interrupt you, but what was the well, what's the hero's paradise for a white supremacist? Like, what's the end game?
0: Well, you know, here I was, a, for- a a really marginalized 14-year-old kid who felt powerless and was bullied, and all of a sudden I shaved my head and wore boots, and the bullies would cross the street now when I would walk by. Years later, I, w- huh. I would recruit them because I knew they were as broken as I was. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think the hero's journey—you know—they always pitch like this: white warrior, this Viking, this gladiator. Uh, you know, uh, your ancestors were great thinkers and artists and warriors, kind of thing. It's it's this very epic, uh, you know, vision of 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 the warrior of paradise, and it's really no—it's absolutely no different. And why somebody might fly to Syria to join ISIS or to join a cult or, you know, a gang in an inner city, it really is about wanting to belong and wanting to be part of something that's bigger than yourself. And you're also right, you know, they take a very complicated issue and they boil it down to something very unit dimensional, something very black and white. Uh, And they pit you against everybody else who is the enemy who's trying to take something away from you without really reflecting internally and saying, well, maybe I'm, you know, to blame for some of these problems that are happening in my life. Or maybe it's, you know, the corporations or maybe it's healthcare system that, you know, is taking advantage of me. Why do I hate this person who's my neighbor who happens to have darker skin or pray to a different God or love somebody that I don't think that they should love? They're not causing my problems. They're, they have no impact on my life whatsoever, uh, yet we're being kind of forced against each other like pawns, and, and that's a really sad state of affairs.
2: So you, you were 14, you have a community, you have purpose, you, you feel like you have power, you're, you're a radicalized Thor without the hammer, yeah. uh, a, a Viking ancestor walking with, you know, with, with boots. Um, how did you go about now emerging as a leader in this community?
0: It was kind of a, you know, circumstantial. So um, the guy who recruited me, Clark Martell, who was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead leader, had gone to prison for a series of violent crimes and so had many of the older people. And the ones who didn't go to prison kind of ran. so I was left as kind of the last man standing and it was my neighborhood. Uh, and I was 16, I would learned how to recruit, you know, I was kind of their poster boy. I was very eager to learn, I was very idealistic. And well, uh, uh, What
2: neighborhood? Mommy has to, this,
0: what is, this is the southwest side of Chicago in a, in a largely Italian neighborhood called Blue Island. Uh, the Chicago area skinheads were born there in 1985. Uh, Clark had brought it over from England uh, and uh, very quickly spread after that.
2: And so you, so you emerged now, you're a leader, and obviously there was a break. There was something, I'm assuming a triggering event that said, wait, what am I doing with my life?
0: You know, in all honesty, I had questions every day. I was involved for eight years. Um, You know, foundationally, that wasn't who I was. And, you know, I had to learn how to do that. I had to adopt uh, whatever it was that I had to do because I I wasn't going to risk losing the only thing that I had ever known that gave me any sense of, you know, power. Um, So, you know. Or even
2: community. Uh, Or community. community. It was my family. Yeah, I uh, I mean, back in the day... And even perhaps now, like, uh, exile meant death. Yeah. So you just went with it. So, I mean, you had to give up. Something had to have happened, right? Yeah. There were... There were a lot of like,
0: you know, kind of trajectory changing moments. You know, at nineteen, I got I fell in love with a girl, got married, we had our first son. At twenty one, we had our second. That kind of challenged my whole sense of identity, community, and purpose. Um, I opened a record store to sell racist music, uh, and I was making racist music. And I started to meet people who came into my store who knew exactly who I was, but still treated me with compassion. And these were people who I thought I hated you know, blacks and Jews and and, uh, LGBTQ and, and, you know, they knew very well what I I was and what I'd done. And yet they still came in and treated me with compassion. And in fact, it was the compassion that I received from them, the people I least deserved it from, probably at a time I least deserved it, that really was the most powerful kind of transformative thing because I I just couldn't demonize them anymore. You know, I had no choice but to humanize them. Changed my whole perspective.
2: You know, what you said just reminds me, I think, uh, 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 of a mutual colleague of ours, a friend, uh, Arno Michaels. He said the same thing. Uh, He was radicalized, and he said when when he was met with compassion, uh, uh, specifically from those people who he hated, it just kind of disrupted his worldview. And it reminds me kind of now the dilemma we have here in America 2018, where you know the stats. In the last 10 years, we've seen this kind of exponential rise in white supremacist groups, nativist anti-immigrant groups, and radical right-wing anti-government groups, populated mostly by white men mm-hmm. and we see the right of rise of the alt right um who ra- who recruit young straight white men mostly from college mm. and and I'm, and you know and now you see a tension cuz a lot of people say we must resist obviously but then what you're saying is the the kindness and compassion of people who knew exactly what you were was it ultimately what de-radicalized you so what's I mean, can you can you appreciate the tension here where a lot of people of color and women are like, why are we trying to normalize and humanize these KKK members and all right men who want to destroy us? And other people are saying, and this is my assumption, what what I hear you saying is, yeah, but if you kind of reach out to some of them, you can you can break the hate.
0: Right. Well,
2: you know, where's the balance uh,
0: there? You know, I don't know any Nazi or extremist that has ever changed his views by getting punched in the face or hit in the head with a bottle of urine at a a rally or, you know, told that they were wrong. In fact, that, you know, probably marginalizes them further, pushes them further down, you know, whatever hole they're in and makes them angrier. Um, In in my experience, you know, I, I definitely hold people accountable. I don't give anybody a pass. If they've done something, they need to make amends for it, they need to be held accountable. I've put myself through that for the last 23 years. Uh, and frankly, it's the only way I can live with myself and continue to move forward. Um, so I encourage people to do that, but at the same time, you know, I wanna encourage people who are on the other side and I completely understand the feelings of people of color or Jewish people uh, who, you know, would feel very uncomfortable with that. I would never encourage anybody to do that if they felt uncomfortable because obviously, you know, they're scared. It could be a safety issue. Um, But I can tell you that the only thing that I've ever seen change anybody who is a hater, and I've seen it hundreds of times is that connection, that, that breaking and destroying of the de- of the demonization and replacing it with humanization. It's the only thing that works. Facts don't work anymore. It has to be emotional. And we have to, you know, most times, nine and a half nine point nine 9.9 times out of 10, these folks have never had a meaningful interaction or dialogue with anybody they think they hate. They hate them from afar. And most times they hate other people because they hate themselves. And they need to project their yeah. own pain onto others so that they don't have to feel it. And sometimes, for these folks, uh, if you make somebody feel worse than you do, then that's sometimes the only way you can feel better about yourself. Uh, I've seen, you know, tremendous trauma. Trauma is always is always the, the the kind of push factor that that pushes people towards these movements and towards the fringes.
2: And, and so, you know, what what you know, you're witnessing, we're witnessing this in America right now. You know, and and I and I and I think I, I get what you're saying because if you look at the alt-right members. If the major source of their loathing and their anger is not Jews, not Blacks, not Muslims. But the, don't worry, we're there, uh, or, or the immigrants. It's women, mm. and the and the anger is towards women. These these women who are emasculating these men, breaking these men, right? right. And in order to feel like a man again, you have to join this group. Um, and these this this is a generation, our generation, which is the most diverse, the most connected, has social media, sees TV and movies. Um, the, if you had to diagnose it why are we witnessing this in america what's happening right now that's causing this rise
0: well i think we're failing our children i think that we're raising them to not be compassionate i think we are not exposing them to the full spectrum of truth i think we're not vulnerable to our kids so in turn they you know have no idea how to be vulnerable to us and tell us what's even happening in their lives um, but, you know, we're also making it very hard for young people because school is outrageous. People can't afford it. Uh, there are smart, talented people who just will never be able to experience college because they live in a certain neighborhood or their family income is you know, below a certain level or they just can't afford it. Um, when they graduate, there's really no promise that they'll get a job. Um, And they are more connected, so they understand diversity, but it's easier to be marginalized, too. And so many folks who are marginalized in real life because they may have, you know, social anxiety or even a mental uh, developmental disorder uh, might have a hard time connecting with people in real life, but they do that online. And online, kind of misery loves company, so they find each other and then they commiserate. Right. And you know, of course, they have to blame somebody because it's not going to be their fault. Nobody ever blames themselves, um, and especially everyone.
2: Everyone's the victim of their narrative; they're never the oppressor. I'm exactly.
0: Yeah, and you know, they're, it's certainly not a, a, a place where they self-reflect very much. Uh, So, of course, they blame, you know, women because maybe they've never had successful, uh, you know, relationships with women or have never been able to connect, uh, you know, on an emotional level. So they blame them for their problems. Uh, But the truth is, is their problems started from the day they were born. Uh, You know, it could be an untreated or undiagnosed mental illness. I see a lot of... uh, uh, people living with autism and Asperger's and bipolar and and just depression in general about 70 percent of the people I work with uh, would fall into that category and um, You know isolation they've never had contact with the people they think that they hate so they automatically assume that they're the cause and the root of their problems
2: You know uh, and, and I ideas and I've noticed this trend is, is people are finally connecting the dots they're becoming aware now people always say okay man you you can't leave me on a a sour note and i agree you know i am an optimist i have to be optimistic i have kids um it's a polarized time more politically polarized than any time since perhaps these 60s um extremism begets extremism reaction begets reaction uh people are doubling down people who feel oppressed like women people of color are like oh my god Moderate whites have betrayed us And we're in it for ourselves Other people are trying to create a multicultural coalition of willing. Uh, other forces are at play that are deliberately trying to weaken faith And trust in our institutions All things seem to be falling apart um, I'm not asking you For the magic amulet Or the magic lanyard To put around our necks <laughs> To make us all do kumbaya But uh, specifically focusing on The rise of this angry white male uh, mm-hmm. And how Trump in particular, but not exclusively, has galvanized them. What would you say for the rest of us is a solution to, if not reaching out, and maybe de-radicalization is too harsh of a word, how about inoculation? What's the solution for inoculation so this new generation that comes up sees the toxicity and, and creates something better?
0: we really do have to treat it like we're treating polio you know we have to treat those who are sick and that's something that i do through intervention and and disengagement work but we also have to inoculate the population through prevention and that means a culture Mm -hmm. shift that means that you know we have to start uh, incorporating into uh you know our education uh the full truth. I've been to places in the North and in the South of, of the United States where they teach, you know, the Civil War differently. In the South, in many cases, it's about Northern aggression and, and states' rights. And you go to, to the North and it's about slavery. So in some cases, our education system is is inconsistent. Um, again, parents and adults and teachers need to be vulnerable with their uh, with Younger people, so that younger people can learn to be vulnerable and talk about their feelings instead of bottling them up. And you know, we we end up saying, "But he was such a quiet, nice person. I can't believe he shot ten people in that school. You know, we should kn- we should know a these bone things wolf.
2: Yeah, he was shy. Right. You know, he we was, didn't see he it was coming. So he kept to himself. You didn't see it coming
0: coming because he was the quietest person in the room, but he was screaming the loudest, Ah. and you just couldn't hear it. Mm. Um, And, you know, maybe it's as simple and and stupid as taking your kids from the day they're born out to eat ethnic food instead of just chicken nuggets and grilled cheese sandwiches. So maybe they grow up without a fear of ethnic food and in turn grow up without a fear of ethnic people. Um, You know, I think we as educators, as artists, as writers, we all have tools. We're not all protesters none of us you know not everybody is meant to go out there holding a sign and you know being willing to get arrested but some people have money and they can fund organizations that that are doing this work some people are teachers and they can uh you know teach compassion and 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 and, uh you know empathetic uh type curriculum artists can talk about it and paint about it and and write about it there's you know we all have tools and we all need to utilize those tools because while i am extremely hopeful because i believe in what we can be you know we keep saying you know america is a great country this is not us no it is us we've done this many many times in the past but we've made progress and we'll get to where we want to be but it's going to take time and we need to act now because i'm really afraid that if we don't we are at uh, kind of a crossroads that's going to tie us up for the next 50 to 75 years and it's going to be very very tough fighting it as a you know an unequipped minority force against a pretty powerful government
2: well christian i appreciate your efforts as being a de-radicalized superhero uh waving the hammer for good this time and i'm doing my small part by teaching my ethnic kids to love chicken nuggets and meatloaf <laughs> and grilled cheese uh so we all we all have work to do because you're right this is uh, this is a virus that will spread yeah. um and extremism begets extremism and that destroys a civic society from within especially a pluralistic experiment that somehow still works which is called the united states of america and I appreciate the listeners, uh, me, going on this journey with us. And and Christian has a book, which I have to shamelessly plug, and I'll <laughs> allow Christian to plug it. Where where can they read the book, and where can they support your organization?
0: Oh, I appreciate that. That that was actually not what I was going to say, but I'll plug it if, if I must. My That's my job. <laughs> now the book is called White American Youth: My Descent into America's Most Violent Hate Movement and How, How I Got Out. You can buy it anywhere, any bookstore or online. Uh, my organization is called the Free Radicals Project, and you can find us at freeradicals.org. Uh, what I wanted to say is I just kind of wanted to part with a challenge for you, Waj, and, and for your listeners, is um, this is one thing that everybody can do, is find somebody that you think is undeserving of your compassion and give it to them. Because I know from experience, and I guarantee that they're the ones that need it the most.
2: Uh, a lot of people are going to be hugging and crying, uh, and you can blame Christian.
0: One can only hurt. uh
2: Thanks. <laughs> Thanks so much, Christian, for joining us, and
1: thank you to the listeners. Thanks, friend. Christian Picciolini launched Gold Mill Group, a global digital media and counter-extremism consulting firm. He also co-founded the organization Life After Hate. I'm Ajat Ali, a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times. Thanks for listening.